Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And a really good show for you coming up tonight. Stephen Nathan is our co-host, as always, on a Tuesday evening. Good to have you with us, Stephen. Great to be here, Alec. And then we're going to be picking up with the chief executive of the most successful property listing on the JSE. His name is Andrea Taverna-Terrison, and if you know anything about property, you know he's the CEO of Equitas Property Fund. Andrea, good to have you with us as well this evening. Thank you, Alec. Nice to be here. A big story at Eskom, where the National Prosecuting Authority managed to get a 1.4 billion rand order against the crooks who stole that much from uh, taxpayers. We'll have Chris Yelland, Paul O'Sullivan, and Sikonati Manchasha uh, giving us the lowdown on that story. And then in the second half, after six o'clock, Charles Savage from Purple Group will be addressing the question of whether Warren and Charlie have lost it and should just be leaving the scene. That's the Berkshire Hathaway chairman and vice chairman, aged 90 and 97, who say that retail investors have kind of lost the plot. And then we'll be talking with Corky Coyman on the new chief executive of Berkshire Hathaway, Predicted last night by my colleague, Justin Rowe Roberts. As I told you, Alec, if you watched the Berkshire AGM in detail, uh, Warren and Charlie did give a few hints, and those hints came true. So good to, good to see Greg a- a- Abel's going to be the successor to Buffett. Um, yeah, looking forward to the new generation at Berkshire Hathaway. Official announcement coming only hours after they heard Justin making that very strong prediction. Uh, it's something that many have been waiting for for years. It's a 650 billion rand company and uh, Greg Abel will be the new CEO. But first, let's pick up with the day's news headlines with our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron. At least three in every 10 South Africans have already had coronavirus. That's according to the South African COVID-19 Modelling Consortium. It says the country will likely experience a weaker third wave of coronavirus infections because studies show that 30 to 40% of the population have already contracted the disease. South Africa has allocated an extra 4 billion rand to buy COVID-19 vaccines and extend a special distress grant to thousands of people hit by the pandemic in a special appropriation bill tabled by the Finance Minister on Tuesday. The ANC is possibly guilty of criminal offences in failing to pay over millions of rands in pay-as-you-earn tax to the South African Revenue Service while deducting this money from its employees' wages. That's according to the Opposition Democratic Alliance. The DA says it welcomes the seizing of IEC funds by the South African Revenue Service from the ruling ANC as partial payment of its debt. The DA notes that in terms of the Income Tax Act, It is a criminal offence publishable by prison time for anyone to willfully and without justification withhold funds owed to SARS. Action SA, a new opposition party, has lifted the lid on yet another corruption scandal involving Edwin Sodi, who has been linked to ANC Secretary-General Ace Magashule in the Free State Asbestos scandal. The party says it has been provided with access to tender documents relating to alleged irregularities in a 300 million rand tender awarded by the city of Schwani for work at the Royval Wastewater Treatment Plant. Action SA says Mr. Soddy is notorious for his appearance at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry. 
He has also been implicated in a 44 million rand tender scandal in the city of Johannesburg involving assessments for hostels. Action SA's leader, Herman Mashaba, has accused President Cyril Ramaphosa of not showing the courage of conviction needed to rip corruption out of the ANC's ranks. He's quoted as saying, No one has faced the full consequences of their corrupt actions within the ANC. In other developments involving corruption in the ANC, Eyewitness News reports that it has learnt that the ANC will send suspension letters to party members who refuse to step aside. This decision follows an ANC National Working Committee meeting on Monday in which lists were collated from different provinces and prepared for this coming weekend's National Executive Committee. Rhino poaching is on the rise again in South Africa since the government loosened coronavirus restrictions. That's according to Bloomberg. The Kruger National Park has experienced serious numbers of rhino poaching incidents since November last year. In the Kruger National Park, the number of rhinos has plummeted almost more than two-thirds in the last decade to around 3,800 at last count in 2019 from about 11,800 rhinos in 2008. And that brings to a close your business flash briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Business. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Here's Justin. The JSE All Share Index traded lower at 66,300. Some of the day's highlights included Equitus Property Fund was 6% lower on the day to 19.20 a share as the company released its year-end results. Process lost 3.5% to a touch over 1,500 rand a share. Sabanya lost 3% to 67 rand and Telcom also fell by 3.5% to 37 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand, 46 cents to the dollar. 20 rand and 8 cents to the pound and 17 rand and 41 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,794 an ounce. Brent crude is also up at $68 a barrel, 70 cents. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 790k Bitcoin. This market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Stephen, I know it's a while ago before you founded 10X, but you used to be the top-rated analyst on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. You need to give us a little bit of an unpacking before we do talk to Andrea. As Justin told us, Equitus's share price was down by 6% today, but... The price is 19 Rand 23. Equitus's net asset value, property company, is 17 Rand 25. So basically, investors are still saying we're prepared to pay a premium for management. Yes, I think that, uh, uh, let me just at the outset say that property was not my forte, uh, <laughs> used to valuing financial services companies. But uh, as you say, you know, the, the, the valuation of property is, uh, you know, in a, in a sense, it helps investors because they, they do value the underlying future cash flows of the business, or they, at least they estimate that. Imagine if every company had to do that. Let's take Tencent and, and a few others. Can you imagine the wild valuations they've got? So, so you know, there's, there's a more reasonable basis for doing that, but it still is subjective, uh, and it's still quite a, far, you know, quite, a, quite a long-term valuation that has been done. Um, but I think that, uh, uh, you know, um, Equitas, as you said, is – 
Uh, it's had a phenomenal uh, run as a business and also as a share price. And it seems to be one of these where you kind of, you know, uh, buy in the rumor, sell on the fact. So it's had a fantastic run. Uh, and uh, the results to me looked, looked, looked really good. Um, uh, but, you know, the market obviously was anticipating before that good guidance and it's a great company. So you can't take one day in isolation. If you look at the, the longer term trend, it's absolutely fantastic. And just, uh, you know, revenue, I believe, was up 19 percent in this kind of environment. I can't think of any any other property company that has come close to that. So it really looks like a fantastic performance. And I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to what uh, Andre has to say. And just you know, one thing that also struck me, you mentioned the share, the price at about, what's it, about 19 Rand, 25, I think, today. Mm-hmm. And the dividend was 155 cents. So if you just look at the yield there, that's an 8% yield. Uh, and uh, what is really interesting is that the, uh, the weighted average lease uh, has increased from 10 years to 15 years. So there's a there's a locking there of roughly 15 years of contracted income. ShopRite is a major tenant with a 5% escalation. So if you think of it in a way, you're buying a quasi-bond uh, with some great tenants and some great uh, uh, um, price increases locked into that deal, which if you buy a government bond and you get 8%, you get 8% every year, you get no... No income growth and no capital growth. So, so it looks, you know, like a really uh, a strong set of results. And yeah, as I said, it'd be interesting to hear what uh, Andre has to tell us about about well, that. Thanks for giving us all that background, Stephen. Uh, wonderful insights there, Andre. The story is big box warehouses, uh, which is booming around the world thanks to people like Amazon uh, and others in that field. Before we go into the financial results, just to pick up with Amazon. Did you have anything to do with the 14 billion rand transaction that they have now concluded in Cape Town? No, absolutely nothing. I mean, that's Amazon, um, their, their wide service division. It's not their, not their retail online e-commerce division. Uh, they're not present in South Africa. Uh, we are currently developing a, a last mile delivery platform for them in Peterborough in the United Kingdom. Um, but yeah, but they're, they're, that, that division is not present in South Africa. So when we have a look at Amazon's likely introduction to the South African market, there are lots of rumors around it. You would be one of the first people to know, presumably. I would like to think so. Um, yeah. I mean, if I wasn't, then maybe I wouldn't be very good at my job. Yeah. And nothing's, uh, nothing's on that score yet. No, not that I've heard of. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, we've, uh, <laughs> so, you know, so we've, we've had a few. Uh, so, so the nice best guys can breathe another sigh of relief uh, <laughs> for the moment anyway. Uh, I, I'm very interested to look at your background, that you, you were actually educated in London and at Harvard Business School. And coming to South Africa uh, with that kind of focus, presumably, and I know you've got a big business in the UK, must have given you a global perspective when you have a look at where the growth areas are in property. Well, yeah, I cut my teeth in property in South Africa, though. Um, so, I mean, I, I, when I first came to South Africa, I actually was a commercial property broker. I, I had an ambition to build a, a portfolio. You know, my father had a construction company in Zambia for many, many years, and I was born in Zambia and grew up in Zambia and got shipped off to boarding school in the UK at a, quite a young age. Um, and, yeah, and I came to Cape Town in 1995 when... A lot of people were, were running scared, I suppose, and I saw it as an opportunity. And, uh, and, yeah, and South Africa has been extremely kind to me. 
Andrea, um, as Stephen said, I had a look at the results today. They were awesome. Just a few qualitative concerns that I had. I saw 50% of the properties were independently valued by executives. Um, NAV, obviously a portion of that is attached to NAV uplift um, executive compensation. Is that not a bit of a conflict of interest? Not really. I mean, if, if you look, I mean, SA REIT and, and the JSC have got um, a three-year rotation on valuation. So international norms are that a third of your portfolio would be valued at any given moment in time. About 18 months ago, our board decided that we wanted to be a little bit more conservative than that. So we are valuing every single property on an 18-month rotation rather than a three-year rotation. Um and if you if you it's slightly skewed with the fifty six percent because that's combining UK and SA. If you look at just the SA property portfolio, uh, externally valued in this financial year was just north of sixty percent. So we, we 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 certainly are, are are valuing our portfolio significantly more than our peers. Not that but we measure ourselves against our peers in these things. We 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 do take a, an internal view in terms of best practice. And the reality is, as we grow and get bigger, you know, the board may at some stage in the future decide to to do those valuation on an annual basis. And, and we'll see how that plays out in due course. But but that is a decision that our board will make in, in due course. We we feel, as things are at the moment, that we are definitely one one of the leading, leading sort of uh, uh, management teams when it comes to these things. And you also increased your distribution at a time when everybody else in the property field is actually slashing theirs. But the, I guess the big story, and people love a story, is that warehouses are going up in increasing numbers. The whole N3 uh, route between Durban and Johannesburg is chocked full with, with trucks. And I guess the more trucks you have, the better it is for your business because they actually can go to warehouses anywhere and not necessarily next to a railway line. I mean, the the reality is that I think it would be in South Africa's interest if um, the inland port at at Cato or the inland port at at Tambo Springs basically were, were to be unlocked and and developed. I think it would, it would take a lot of pressure off our highways. And and as you, as you know, the maintenance of those highways with this volume of trucks on them, um, is, is disproportionate to sticking those containers on on trains. And, and the reality of it, if Durban has got any ambition of recapturing its primary status as the leading African port, uh, it's number three at the moment, I believe, um, you know, these inland ports are, are becoming essential. Uh, the reality of it is that the goods coming into Durban predominantly go into the Sadiq countries and into Gauteng, which remains the economic hub of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and, and the most efficient way and the cheapest way of doing it, if the facilities were put in place, uh, would invariably be by rail. And, and unfortunately, the, the situation at the moment doesn't allow for that. And the most efficient way is to bring it up by road. And, and, um, and you'll see, obviously, massive house, warehousing coming up on the R21, obviously also up by Centurion on the N1. I mean, the waterfall estate has, has exploded in, in recent years. Um, so, so you know, prime logistics warehouses are, and the technology going into them are a brand new evolution, or when I say brand new, have evolved dramatically in the last 10 years. And, and the big benefit for us is some of the historic buildings that were put up 15 and 20 years ago are, are technically obsolete. So, 
if companies were wanting to come into the 21st century and, and introduce the, the necessary um, technology inside and outside their warehouses and, and compete on a supply chain basis at, at, to be best in class, the reality is that it would be in their interest to be talking to us. You mentioned Tambo Springs. Uh, we understand mm. that the Steinhoff, ex-Steinhoff people are behind that. We also understand there's been massive allegations of corruption. Are you, uh, are you on the inside track on any of that? Well, I mean, you know, it was the, 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 the tender was awarded in 2016. I'm of Italian origin. It was awarded to Ferrovia Italiana, which is the Italian railway service. And, and, and I believe, and I, have, I, I don't know the detail, but I do believe that there was some, something that shouldn't have happened happened. And that has been, I believe that tender was scrapped. Um, and there, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, there's there's a couple of people that are trying to get that back on track and get it moving in the right direction. And I'm, I'm not saying that 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 it, it's going to happen overnight, but what I am saying is that it would certainly be in the interest of Hao Ting to have an inland port. There's no question. Stephen, uh, last question for Andrea. Uh, Andrea, um, obviously you've got a lot of a lot of potential to grow, but maybe just um, what are the what are the big levers that you have? What are the big opportunities uh, that you see over the next 12 to 18 months? Growth maybe in South Africa uh, and then also in the UK. Well, in South Africa, I think the biggest driver of our growth is going to be supply chain efficiency. I don't think e-commerce is quite big enough yet as a platform. It sort of represents approximately 4% of, of, of RAND spend at the moment. And, and, and real, real estate decisions are not being made at the moment to accommodate e-commerce. Um, so supply chain efficiency is the one driver of that. Um, the other driver, in the, I mean, whereas in the UK, it's the complete opposite. I mean, the UK went from 19% of, of online sales pre-COVID to sitting approximately at about 33% at the moment. You've got 50, 50 million square foot plus, which is over 5 million square meters of space taken up last year. 25% of that was Amazon in the UK. The reality is that if you want to compete with Amazon in the UK, you better start planning pretty, pretty quickly uh, to, to take them on head on because, I mean, they're, they're not stopping anytime soon. I mean, they're an impressive, impressive organization. And, and the reality is that, you know, they're talking that in the next sort of three to five years that, you know, that number could become 50%. You know, I'm, whilst I'm, 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 I'm punting my own book, I do think we are we are social by nature as human beings, and I do think people still want to shop and still want to go to the high street and still want to go to the shopping centre. But but these 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 places are going to have to reinvent themselves to become more proficient uh, in terms of delivery. And 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 the reality of it is that the benefit for us is that for every pound that is sold in a, in a shop. Um, the, the supply chain warehousing capacity needed, you need to multiply that by three to deliver it on an online platform. Um, and, and the consequence of that is what we're seeing is that, that warehousing is becoming slightly bigger in the UK. That's also a consequence of Brexit and, 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 and supply chain disruptions. But more importantly, we're seeing the, the last mile delivery platforms, which are, are, are very land hungry. They tend to occupy less than 20% of the land that they're on because there's just so many vehicles coming and going. Andrea, so when you put mm. all of these things together, it's, uh, it's, it's, 
I think that the, the road is very is very rosy for us in the next three to five years. Thanks for sharing that with us, uh, Andrea. It is a Pleasure. story, a story to be followed uh, in South Africa. If you want to invest in property, I don't know, Justin, if you could find a better property stock uh, than Equitas at the moment. Absolutely unbelievable. I agree, Alec. I think the question comes in now as an investment case. I mean, Equitas is run. It's trading at a premium to NAV. When you can get discounts, say, a well-diversified REIT, such as a redefine or growth point, but then it just poises the question um, value versus price. And I think you're getting great value with, uh, or, or, or great business rather, with Equitas. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, the big story of the day is that the National Prosecuting Authority's investigating directorate has been awarded a restraint order of 1.4 billion rand against former Eskom executives and a guy who we've been talking about a fair amount, uh, Mike Lomas, former chief executive of Group 5. We've got with us Paul O'Sullivan and Chris Yelland. Chris, I want to kick off with you first. We've been covering the story with Paul and and I'd like to get his, his take, but... A few days ago, we were hoping to talk to you on the power ships off the Cape Coast. You were skeptical that it was a good deal for the country. Last night, we had the chief executive of DNG Energy, Aldworth Mbalati, telling us that there was massive corruption in the awarding of that contract to the Turks, to these power ships. Now, put the two together does it make sense? Uh, in other words, are we joining dots where they do exist? Look, it, it, the power ships contract for 20 years with fuel making up one rand per kilowatt hour out of the tariff bid of one rand 50 per kilowatt hour. That means that the fuel itself is two thirds of the tariff. And that tariff, that, that uh, two thirds is linked to the US dollar Rand exchange rate, and the um, international commodity price of liquefied natural gas, LNG. And, of course, uh, the price is also linked to the carbon price. Now, I don't know if you saw what's happening to the carbon price in Europe today, uh, but it's like uh, uh, it's, it's, it's really gone up dramatically. And in South Africa, the carbon tax is very low. And the upside potential for the carbon tax in South Africa is very high. So there's massive upside risk in that tariff. That tariff is not fixed for 20 years. It's not linked to CPI for 20 years. It's linked to these variables that have got massive upside risk. So it's either, it's either means, incompetence uh, or corruption. Paul O'Sullivan uh, we, uh, comes in now. Paul, uh, we're going to be talking in a moment also to Chris about the latest scandal to hit Eskom. We've been covering this with tubular construction projects, etc. When you look at these power ships, from what Chris has outlined to us, is it incompetence uh, by the government or is there a lot more to it? Well, of course, if um, ESCOM hadn't have been captured by criminals, we wouldn't need the power ships. But um, I don't have enough knowledge about how the power ship operations are going to work to know whether it, there's any incompetence involved there. But certainly, we should never have needed these power ships in the first place. And we must thank the likes of Trindadi and uh, the, the, the Khakudi and all the other people at ESCOM that were feeding at the trough. 
Uh, Chris, have you been following the story uh, of Trindadi and uh, and what they call tube, uh, tubular construction projects, uh, which is today came to a head in in uh, in the Johannesburg uh, High Court? Well, look, you know the, 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 these executives have been arrested in the past. So, Eskom executives and the tubular executives. There's court cases pending, and we're here now of massive, massive uh, corruption uh, under the cloak of supplier development programs and BEE, uh, probably uh, uh, well-meaning programs and intentions uh, that are are literally massively abused uh, and and a vehicle for corruption. And uh, today we hear that the SIU has frozen the assets uh, was the NPA that's frozen the assets uh, of these executives, both the former Eskom executives and tubular executives, to the tune of, well, over a billion rand. It's hard to imagine, uh, you know, uh, corruption on that kind of scale uh, directed at a few individuals. Uh, but I think it's more than just a few individuals. It's uh, endemic and multi-layered uh, within Eskom and within uh, some of its uh, contractors but chris as i say it's yeah let's just go into this guy abram masangu now i worked in a corporate for a period of time and i had the good fortune to be a group executive at the corporate which was like a seriously big job he's a group executive so he's not this is not a guy who's uh who's just running around doing deals on the side a group executive would make him probably one of the top 20 in eskom a very powerful man on top of which his portfolio was group capital. Now, that scares me rigid because if, if you have a crook who's running a portfolio like that at the very top and group capital is really where, where Eskom, uh, well, the big money of Eskom uh, lies, you've got to ask yourself, how did someone like that get to a position of such importance? Well, you see, he started off at Kusili. Uh, he was the project manager at Kusili. So he was intimately involved with many of the contractors. And uh, and he got pushed into this position of, uh, as you say, a group capital executive. I mean, this is on the exco of, ex- of Eskom, uh, probably, you know, along with about 15 to 20 other executives. So he was in that top of the list. And as you say, group capital is where the big money is. And uh, it's just astounding how, uh, how you know, money gets channeled from contractors, apparently uh, it gets, gets channeled from contractors to other entities under the guise of donations towards uh, a, a community development, uh, schools, etc. And then this, this other entity to which the money is channeled then funnels the money to individuals at Eskom who are responsible for gathering uh, uh, money from these contractors. And, of course, the contractors have lots of claims for extras uh, so that they are uh, favoured in terms of uh, overinflated prices for extras to the contracts. So contracts begin to escalate. Uh, Donations come in from the contractors. The money gets channelled back to these executives. That's how the story, that's the narrative that is presented by this massive data dump uh, that we have seen, uh, and, and which is resulting in, in this, the latest uh, stories. 
and I believe there's much more to come. Uh, the media are going to leak this out bit by bit to maximize every uh, opportunity, uh, you know, for readership. Uh, and, and so I think the story's got a long way to run still. Chris Yelland is uh, one of our go-to guys when it comes to uh, issues on Eskom and energy. He is an electrical engineer. Paula Sullivan is uh, a forensic investigator. What Chris said, Paul, does that lie? Is that exactly the same as uh, as the modus operandi in this case? You've been very close to this case for for some years now. Yes, um, we opened a docket. I think in early 2019. And we've even posted a copy of that docket on our website, on, on the Forensics for Justice website. And from that, it becomes immediately apparent what was going on. Also, the banks, you know, I think the banks need to be held accountable here as well. I mean, we had one of these guys taking five million rand at a time in a suitcase over a period of 18 months, uplifted 85 or 90 million rand in suitcases from Absa Bank. And Absa Bank believed that they did the right thing and they complied with the rules. Just but they allowed him to carry on banking. Explain that, Paul. Explain that. So they went into the bank. This guy, uh, France Lacaudi, went into Absa with a suitcase of five million rand. Sounds uh, pretty dodgy mafia type stuff. And then put it over the counter. <laughs> No, no, no. He withdrew the cash. He withdrew the cash. Yeah. Oh, that's so even he, better. He, while he was a, an executive at ESCOM, he was running his own little business, which was just a money laundering business, which was called Hakudi Translation CC. And that company uh, laundered literally tens and tens of millions. And it was all removed in suitcases because that's where the chain was broken. And then the money was obviously shared out with other executives at ESCOM. And some of the money went into this, com- this, this other company that was supposed to be uh, masquerading as a social development company, was supposed to be building schools and uplifting the community. It was doing nothing of the kind. It was, it was uplifting executives at ESCOM. So it was just a front. Uh, there was no good, just a front. No good going Complete on Complete front, yeah. Now, why is all of this suddenly getting a lot of attention from Eskom? We've known that Eskom's been corrupt for a long time. Uh, Mark Pamensky, the Guptas. Uh, you've got to go and look back at the boards that were on, uh, at the Eskom boards that were there at the time of the Guptas. Half of them, at least, were people closely associated with the Guptas with very little experience of serving at that level. Uh, some pretty young ladies who maybe got conned into doing that. Why is it only now that this is all coming? Is this a whole well, political I thing? I don't think the Guptas were linked to this at all. Um, Not this particular but so, one, but Eskimo. No, indeed. but there was so much thievery going on that nobody was really watching the purse strings whatsoever. So you had Kusili Power. In fact, every single power station they built in the last 10 years was based on corrupt contracts. There was nothing that was done right. And that's why we've got no electricity today, because these power stations... When you've got corruption involved, people get away with uh, cutting corners in, in the contracts. And I think Kusili isn't even running at 50% capacity because the units are not finished properly. And Eskom has huge debt, which we as taxpayers look like we're going to have to either pay it through higher tariffs or uh, through a government um, repayment of the loans. Yeah, of course, it's our debt, isn't it? Because we own Eskom. 
Um, so every man, woman and child in the country that's paying taxes is contributing towards the uh, bottom line of ESCOM in addition to the money you pay for your electricity. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big mess all the way around. And that's why two and a half years ago when we started investigating um, Klakudi and Trindadi and others in particular, uh, we were very keen to expose all this. Paul O'Sullivan from Forensics for Justice bringing us up to date on the latest round in the saga that he's been living with since, as he told it, for the last two years, uh, exposing one Antonio Trindade, uh, who himself uh, was the, well, he was at a, he owned a company called Tubular Construction Projects. He brought in, would you believe, the former CEO of a Group 5, Mike Lomas, Lomas is in the process of being extradited back to South Africa from the UK, where he uh, likely will face a very lengthy prison term in this country. Extraordinary to go from the from the corner office of a major corporation uh, into jail. And so, too, Abra Masango, who was a group executive, and I, I, I cannot stress this enough, these are – a group executive at Eskom is like the – in extremely rarefied atmosphere. They get paid – millions of rands every year. They don't need more money unless it's driven by greed and corruption. And that's precisely what happened in this case. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Right, let's uh, pick up with our next story on Charlie and uh, Warren from Berkshire Hathaway. Justin? Yes, Alec. Um, we've seen some attacks from the Reddit Wall Street bets traders around Charlie and Warren's comments at the at the Berkshire a- AGM, which I actually thought were fascinating, calling it a, a casino and a Robin Hood of sorts. Charles Savage, I'll call you a sophisticated investor as a result of being a chief executive of a listed company, but I know you're going to be boxing for the retail investors as well. Where do you sit on this one? Look, um, I'm, with, I'm with Team Reddit. You know, the world's changing; it's changing fast, and uh, you know, you can't you can't call people gamblers because uh, they potentially behave a little differently to the way you did back almost 80 years ago. And I think both uh, Warren and Charlie have got to remember that what they did is they took high conviction bets. Um, on companies that they themselves fell in love with, and this Reddit crowd are doing the same, and I guess getting accused as gamblers. So that, I mean, the one thing I've got some sympathy with Charlie on is that you know in Robin Hood you've got some gambling mechanisms, which I think, uh, and products which I would describe to more towards gambling than investing. So you know some of those option ladders and option structures and the more derivative products and then the margin lending those are not for me typical investing products, but in our experience, about 5% of the base behave like gamblers, and 95% of the base are investing exactly as Charlie and Warren would want them to behave. And I think that's the key, is if we opened up that Robin Hood community and let Warren look inside or Charlie look inside, I think they'd find that 95% of them are behaving exactly the way you would want them to. Okay, so social media is full of comments like this one from uh, a guy called Howard Lindzen, who's a trader and a technology investor. He calls Buffett and Munger 
old men cranky pants. Uh, we then get uh, a guy like the venture capitalist, Avichang Garg, who's quite well known, who says, we need to stop listening to Buffett and Munger for investing advice. Software changed the game and left them behind. And uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who again, very well known uh, venture capitalist, says, I respect Buffett and Munger's accomplishments, but they've been riding a long U.S. bull cycle for the last century. So it's almost like <laughs> the guys are 90 and 97. Forget about them. They are they, they to be forgotten. They are to be dismissed. Uh, there's a new world. Yeah, look, I don't buy that. I mean, you know, firstly, what did they, what did they teach us and are those lessons still relevant? And, they, you know, what they taught us was to start young when Warren was 11 when he started. Two is they said, you know, buy stocks you fall in love with them and, and don't sell them until – you fall out of them, so marry them for a long time. And three, you know, in their own uh, portfolios, Warren has had about uh, 50% gearing in his own portfolio over the life cycle of his portfolio. So he's geared himself as well, but he's geared himself very responsibly into high conviction bets. So no, the, the lessons are not, um, they're not to be thrown away. Those are lifelong investing lessons. And, and you know, for me, it would be very short-sighted to throw it away just because technology's got involved. I think the key here is, if I, and I looked at Robin Hood's Twitter following, um, just to get an idea of how, how many, you know, what percentage of people are we talking about, and then the Reddit groups, and about two hundred thousand people are actively uh, following Robin Hood and commenting on Robin Hood's Twitter profile. They've got something like twelve million clients. So this is a case of, uh, this is a case of the the five percent driving the dialogue. Uh, you know, the other 11 and a half million people are silent on this stuff. And I think that's where the real kind of magic is in that those people are doing exactly what Warren and Charlie would have said. So, no, it's not time to throw them away. They're, they're the best of the best and the lessons that they've taught all of us are will be time tested. Stephen Nathan, uh, what's your thought on all of this, on this, this uh, uh, sudden aggravation by... Um, people, some retail investors, towards the, the two old fellas? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more in the old school camp. I think that, uh, that uh, you know, you have to look at people's motives for investing. You know, are they investing? Is this investing or is it speculation? Uh, and uh, I mean, just anecdotally and very relevant, a friend of mine's in the gaming industry and he's been analyzing gaming trends. Stephen, looks like we've lost you for a minute, but you you had quite a uh, quite a, you were following Justin some uh, end some, of it uh, in the US. In, are you uh, Stephen? Sorry, have I broken up there? Yeah, we broken up. Would you mind switching off your video? Uh, that could be what's causing the uh, the, the bandwidth issue. We have this amazing te- software called Riverside.fm, but sometimes uh, there's South African bandwidth uh, gets the better of us. Stephen, let's try now. Okay, apologies. Sorry, I don't know where I did. I did you get the gaming piece about we, we used, online gaming in the U? No, we just started there. Online maybe. gaming mm. in the. Okay, so apologies. So 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 uh, online gaming uh, in the US uh, during COVID, during lockdown uh, in the US, and when the checks were paid as part of their COVID relief, uh, there's been a direct correlation between increasing in gaming revenues and gaming activity. So you know, there's definitely something unusual happening over here. And I think that uh, you know, the, the, it comes back to you know, is this speculation? Are people doing it because of long-term investing? And Charles is exactly right. It's fantastic to bring many more people into you know, in, into saving, into investing. Um, but I think the motives are, are and 
Yeah, we've lost Stephen. Uh, Charles, let's just uh, bring up one of the issues that uh, is, uh, well, has been said by Charlie Munger. And remember, this is a 97-year-old. He says that Bitcoin is, quote, disgusting and contrary to the interests of civilization. <laughs> he mentioned a few times in, in, the, in the Berkshire Hathaway AGM that it is contrary to the interests of civilization on various other issues. Is he losing it at 97? Yeah, look, I mean, neither Warren nor Charlie have been fantastic tech pickers. Um, you know, they were very slow adopters of tech and eventually in on Apple and, you know, made a hundred billion, I think, on Apple in the last couple of years. But they are, they're slow to adopt new technologies. And I think they're just a bit slow. <laughs> and, you know, the future of money, it's, for me, there's no argument that can be made that doesn't say the future of money doesn't look more like crypto. And, I, you know, is it Bitcoin? I don't know. Is it Ethereum? I don't know. Is it Dogecoin? I hope not. But, you know, the bottom line is I don't know. The, but I think, Charlie, that's a, that's a ridiculous statement. I mean, I think paper money would have faced the same friction uh, when it was invented all those, whatever, 100 years ago uh, that crypto is facing. And, yeah, maybe they are getting a bit long in the tooth when it comes to new technologies. Charles, just just a question that I've been thinking about. I mean, I, I haven't been um, sleeping very well the last few evenings. Uh, the retail <laughs> investors, I mean, this has obviously been a big pickup since March 2020. A whole lot of retail investors into the market, which I agree is awesome. People get to understand about the companies they invest in, etc., and all those good things. There's so many benefits. But these retail investors, they've... They've only ever succeeded. They haven't gone through. I mean, there's been a few 10% corrections. What happens if there's a, if there's another, say, March 2020 and 08, a dot com bubble in 1987? What, what kind of panic yeah. do you think we're going to see in the markets? Yeah, yeah, Justin, you, that question looks like it might have been asked by Stephen instead of you. You should get some sleep because you're young <laughs> and you can live through these things. Alec and I have seen a few bear markets. Um, you know, the bottom line is you've got to, these guys have not had it easy. So, yes, the guys who arrived in, in March, they arrived in a storm, uh, high volatility and very difficult market conditions. And it, it took a lot to ride out something like Sassel. Just go look at what the Sassel share price did from March today. And they rode it out. They made hundreds of millions of rands riding out Sassel, and they, a lot of them are still in it. But, you know, for the first time, forget about the, the, the investors who arrived in March because they've been in, in arriving in mass for the last six, seven years. Robinhood's not an overnight nice success story, nor there is, neither is Easy Equities. And in South Africa, this has been the toughest investment period that I have ever seen over the last five years. I mean, if you were investment, if you were a, an asset manager the last five years, you've had your worst five years ever. And in that five-year period, the average retail investor has outperformed the index which puts them in the top 10% of asset managers. So, you know, this this exclusive group of people that used to be able to beat the market used to be called asset managers because they had front row seats to the shares. They had disproportionate uh, access to CEOs. They had access to information and all and systems and low trading costs and all those kind of things. Those things are all gone. Those advantages are gone. The retail investor's got the same advantage, and I'd argue that he has – uh, he has a, he has he's more incentivized to look after his money better than an asset manager because it's his money and he knows exactly uh, what he wants to do with it because he's now informed. So yeah, I think Justin, you must get some sleep. I, don't worry about these retail investors. They're, they're smart, they're savvy, they're resilient, um, and they behave exactly the opposite way to what the textbook taught us 
um, they would have behaved. You know, they should have. We in if I go back to two thousand eight, which obviously the last bear market I saw. In 2008, retail investors ran away from the markets in droves. They sold stocks and they ran away. Stockbrokers literally got closed down because they were running away so fast. This time around, they ran towards the storm. They saw an opportunity to buy stocks at levels that they hadn't seen in five, six years, and they took money off the sidelines and added to their investments. And that's what that's what Warren Buffett would have taught, taught us to do, right? Buy when everyone's fearful. And that's what the retail guys are doing. So I think they'd welcome the next storm. You know, they're young. They can ride it out and they can see a good opportunity. And so if we have a crash, which we will have one day, it won't be a case of investors running away. It'll be a case of investors finding more capital to add to their uh, their, their stack of investments. Mm. That's fighting talk. Stephen, uh, you've also seen a few bear markets in your time, as I have and as uh, Charles has. I don't remember anybody running towards the storm in 1987 when the market dropped 25% in one day uh, and then continued sliding thereafter. Are you, are you of the same mind uh, that Charles is at, that we have a new maturity amongst uh, retail investors? Stephen? No, I think, I think we've, uh, we've lost Stephen. His connectivity, unfortunately, Charles has saved us there. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know 1987. You remember they left Cochrises at 90 Rand going down to 4 Rand and then finally being switched off. Alec, Alec you're forgetting that in 1987 I would have been in Standard 6. So, um, no, I don't remember 87. But I remember 98, 2008, and, yeah, 2008 was, uh, was probably the one that reflects clearly on my memory. But, you know, it, the difference about this this last uh, storm that we had in March is that you know, there was, it, was, it was very short-lived and very, very steep uh, on both the entry and the exit of the, of the bear market. And if anything was going to scare investors, it would have scared this, that March move last year, this time last year, would have scared them. I mean, one thing we did see is that those that were scared were closer to you on my age than to Justin's age. So there's a, you know, and, and, and that's about time, right? You know, you and I are worrying about, you know, our assets pre- uh, performing for us in a much shorter period of time. And so we, we can't afford a 40% loss on our portfolios. But if I'm 30 years old and, you know, all I've invested is 10% of my assets um, and I'm, you know, I've got a whole 30 years ahead of me, then it's an extraordinary opportunity. And it, it's not, it's not rocket science. So, so I think Charlie and, and Warren, honestly, I think they'd be proud. If I, if I could share my data with them about our customers and their behaviors and what they're doing with their portfolios, they t- it's textbook stuff. I mean, and they, you know, interestingly, I was chat I was on a kid's group the other day. Uh, I was talking at cares actually, and guys were quoting stuff out of your book, Alec. These oh, are, good. These are, these are grade seven, grade eight, grade nine kids, kids. And they were quoting stuff. I said, where did you read that? And they were like, oh, I read it in Alec Hogg's book. You know, <laughs> wow. They're doing what, we, what uh, you'd hope them to do. So that was, yeah, they're educated. They're smart. They're savvy. Now, well, obviously, the new, the new wave of investors are far, far smarter than the old wave because they read the right... <laughs> <laughs> I read the right. No, I'm, I'm very, I'm seriously impressed and well done to the guys. It was actually that book was written for people who are coming into the market to begin with, and uh, and you've had, uh, you've seen a lot of that. Um, uh, in, it, it would be nice to know that the retail investors, at least the South African variety, let's not 
talk about the, the those in the United States on Robin Hood who some of them are just punting for the heck of it. But the South African variety, both yourselves and Standard Bank uh, with uh, Brett Duncan, have tried to say invest, don't trade, mm. put the money away. And when you see Amazon maybe getting a 2000 were it to fall that far, wow, what a buying opportunity. Um, and that's yes. that's kind of the the psychology. So, very interesting. Charles, if you've got a moment to stay with us, Corky Koyman joins us now because we we're still staying with Berkshire Hathaway. And Corky, uh, we've got a new chief executive of Berkshire. How long have you been waiting to hear who the successor to Warren <laughs> Buffett would be? Yeah. Look, Warren is ninety years old, and uh, since when he passed sixty. They started asking him, who's going to take over from you and what's going to happen on the day you die? You remember the meetings you went to as well. And that was always one of the questions. And uh, he always joked about it and say, you know, I can assure you the event of my death will be worse for me than for you. But you're quite right. Finally, and, and it happened by by accident, the name has slipped out, Charlie Munger when they were talking about culture on Saturday, just let it slip out, but Greg will look after, you know, ensure the culture stays the same, which he wasn't meant to say. And then on, on Sunday and Monday, Warren appeared and said, okay, yeah, we basically made the decision for some time ago already that Greg Abel will be the CEO uh, in a few years' time when I step down. I didn't obviously say when that will be, but if something was to happen to Warren today, tomorrow, Craig Abel will become CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. So it, it doesn't mean because he's now been the anointed one that he is going to be the appointed one. I mean, Warren, the way he's going, expects to live till uh, certainly a, at least 103, which is the official retirement age at Berkshire. <laughs> yeah, it was Mrs. Blumken. But uh, you're quite right. If, if you, uh, I, I read a lot of the comments made on Twitter, etc. as well, and, and a lot of guys were saying, look, Charlie Munger at the age of 97 – is sharper than most of us at our prime. So, you know, Warren's certainly uh, still in his prime as well. But, but, but the mood is slowly changing and the share of the base is changing. Uh, even the vote against um, uh, or for change, both in terms of disclosure policy and, you know, culture, uh, in terms of diversity and that type of thing, it doubled from, uh, it was more or less 12 or 13% last year, 25% for this year, so 70% against. But the share of the base of, of Berkshire Hathaway, there's about a million individual shareholders still, and the average age is quite high. And gradually, as, as sadly those people pass away or finally sell their shares, they are being replaced. And also, obviously, as uh, Warren Buffett's pledge to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as they, those foundations start selling the shares, the shares are being replaced by index funds and by um, big pension funds. And I think Greg Abel will be better to handle that that pressure uh, regarding climate change, etc., than 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 Warren. Mm. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I guess, will continue, but that marriage isn't. Uh, Charles, from your side, uh, Greg Abel, is he going to make much difference to Berkshire Hathaway, i.e. you must have a lot of your clients who are invested in, in Berkshire. Uh, do you think that once Warren goes and Greg takes over, they will still be invested? Yeah, look, I, th- I think people are going to sit and watch it closely, especially his first 
big decisions and then make their choices once they've lived alongside him. I don't think anyone's going to sell it for now. Um, you know, the transparency to their holdings is and what they own is more important for now. I think I guess what people will judge him on is the decisions he makes in changing that portfolio moving forward. And his first few will be critical. Corky, that is interesting because there are two sides to Berkshire Hathaway. There's the the, the subsidiaries, the 70 or 80 subsidiaries, which Greg Abel comes from, uh, from um, mid-American uh, electricity, which is yep. Berkshire Hathaway electricity. And then there's the investors, the investment side. Yep. He, he, he doesn't have much experience on the investment side, which is what so many uh, fans of Berkshire Hathaway like, and uh, that's why they follow it. Yeah, so you're quite right. Um, and that's why he put Ted and Todd in place um, to gradually you know, take over the equity portfolio. Um, and, and by the way, that's a whole discussion on itself because I, I see the signs of, of them you know, in terms of selling down bank shares uh, at two, in 2020. I think that was them who were panicking and telling him, yeah, Warren Buffett, yes, uh, Warren, here's a lot of uncertainty. Your exposure to banks is, oh, you've got to reduce it. Um, <laughs> there are other signs. But, so, but I think... The plan is that gradually he gives more and more, if not all, control on the equity portfolio to Ted and Todd, and that they will report to Greg Abel, and Greg Abel will be CEO of of the business, including, uh, yeah, obviously the non-insurance part, and he almost probably have, you know, his his number twos and number threes who will report to him on that. So the big question for both you and Charles, would you be continuing to hold Berkshire Hathaway, uh, both in the light of the unpopularity of Buffett and Munger amongst retail investors, and secondly, now that uh, a non-investment guy is going to be taking over as CEO, uh, starting with yeah. you, Corky? Yeah, um, well, I would say he's more unpopular with, well, I'm not sure unpopular with, with, with your portfolio, your, your, your portfolio investors, your large pension funds, because those are the guys who voted against him. I think the retail investors who vote, who invest with him largely do so because they trust him. Um, so what I've read so far on Greg and, and, you know, unfortunately never met him, but everything, the comments say he exudes extreme competence. And what I've seen of him the past few years at the meetings and specifically last year and this year, I think that is true. And he's also more formal. And it's interesting the comment, and I agree with that, he's expected to keep more transparency. Uh, Buffett and Munger, especially Buffett, have often just laughed off difficult questions that they didn't want to give answers to. I think he will be a lot more transparent. So we know that Berkshire Hathaway consists of, plus, as you say, 60 to 80 extremely well-run subsidiaries selected for their good management, good brand, integrity. So it's still not expensive. It's, it has a tremendous track record. So why sell now? The only reason is that it is big. So you might find smaller companies with a similar culture that can outperform. But I don't think the change is going to be uh, that important in terms of the continu- continuity of the earnings. Thank you, Koki Koyman, who is with Denker Capital. Uh, Charles, your reaction to that question, would you still hold Berkshire Hathaway? 
Yeah, I hold it. It's not a big portion of my portfolio. As I, you know, Alec, I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett, and you know, it's more his investment philosophy that I like. And uh, you know, so long as Berkshire beats me at, at investing in the market, I'll I'll keep holding it. But if I start to outperform it, then I might you know reduce my holdings. Um, for me, it keeps me honest on my portfolio. It's a good benchmark portfolio against which to track your own performance. Um, and I'll be watching it closely. I mean, I was a when when big C when CEOs leave, I'm always skeptical of whether you can replace them. Um, and I think in this instance, you couldn't get a bigger bigger characters than Charlie and Warren. So I think it, there is quite a lot of risk in, in that succession planning. But I'll keep it for now and uh, and watch with with interest very closely. Well, Stephen Nathan seems to have a better line now. Lovely to have you back, Stephen. Just uh, to close off with, uh, because we're getting to the end of our program tonight. Would you hold uh, Berkshire Hathaway in the light of the recent developments with the appointment of Greg Abel and uh, and the unpopularity amongst retail investors of of the two principals? Yeah, so so I think that you know the next twenty forty years are unlikely to be as good as the last twenty or forty years. In fact, I think the last ten years Berkshire has underperformed, and by his own admission. Uh, Buffett has been saying for some time now, you know, you can't expect the same historic performance. So I think I think that the glory days are are over, and um, I think it's going to be very difficult for them to even beat the S and P 500, given the share size and the geniuses behind uh, Berkshire Hathaway. It's a, you know, it's it's difficult enough to replace a uh, Steve Jobs or a Jeff Bezos at Amazon. Uh, you know, but the same should be said of uh, of Berkshire. It's a remarkable company that hasn't been replicated anywhere with a with a with a sheer genius Buffett at the helm. Uh, so you know, uh, I think if you want to buy an index fund, uh, you know, you're probably going to get similar maybe uh, similar performance. Um, but it's a defensive stock, so I think it will do well if uh, you know tech goes off the boil a little bit. So it, it is defensive, but I, I really wouldn't uh, expect fireworks. Now, and I'm going to quickly share with you a, fa- a fascinating st- statistic about Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, his net worth is about $85 billion. Um, but at age 65, uh, which was, what's that, 24 years ago, his net worth was $3 billion, $3 billion. So over 95% of Buffett's wealth has been created after the age 65 when most of us are retiring. And the point about Buffett is his returns have been good. He's compounded at about just over 20% per annum. But the real story behind Buffett, and I think Charles mentioned this earlier, is he's been doing this for over 60 years. And it's it's the combination of compounding at an above average return. Uh, so if you've got a very long-term horizon, you can probably stick with, uh, with Berkshire. Thanks. Brilliant. Thanks to Stephen Nathan and to Charles Savage. And I want to remind you that we've got a webinar tomorrow uh, on something which will outperform Berkshire Hathaway. And the reason for that is that South Africa, the Treasury, has closed its tax incentive, the 12J tax incentive, because it was just too good to be true. Unfortunately, that ends at the, on the 30th of June. But you have got a last crack at this option. Uh, if you invest into these companies that are that are qualified 12J companies, you can write back the investment immediately against your taxable income. So for people who are earning the big bucks, 125000 or more a month, it's kind of a no-brainer because you've got an immediate 45% discount on the investment that you're making, and then you get the returns coming every uh, every year from these companies. You have to invest for five years, but it is a spectacular 
tax incentive, which, because it's so spectacular, has now been done away with. If you want to find out more about this, uh, tomorrow we've got uh, Leo Ati, uh, Ati rather, who is uh, with Lucid Retirement Village. Now, if you want to talk about something that, that's so safe, you bet that's what it is. He'll be on our 12J webinar at noon. You, it's free to all. You have to, though, go on to business.com and register. That's all you have to do. And then have a look at it and see whether 12J is for you. I would urge those people who are in the top income tax bracket to take advantage. Right. Well, Bright Rock, Bright Rock, where did that come from? Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock. The first ever needs match life insurance that changes as your life changes. And uh, Justin will close out tonight, sure. The JSE All Share Index traded lower at 66,300. Some of the day's highlights included Equitas Property Fund was 6% lower on the day to 19.20. Process lost 3.5% to a touch over 1,500 rand a share. Sabanya lost 3% to 67 rand. And Telcom also fell by 3.5% to 37 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 46 to the dollar, 20.08 to the pound, and 17.41 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,794 an ounce. Brent crude is up at $68.70 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 790,000 rand a Bitcoin. And in the US, the markets are all in the red. That's the Dow Jones Industrial Average, S&P 500, and NASDAQ. Tell us why. Why are the markets in the red? Uh, Janet, Janet Yellen, the U.S. Secretary of Treasuries, announced that we could be expecting rate hikes. Rake hi- rate hikes. Well, between um, my walk and your rake hikes. <laughs> sooner than expected. <laughs> okay, so Janet Yellen says interest rates are going to go up. When interest rates go up, shares go down. Not immediately, but certainly over the longer term. This market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs match life insurance that changes as your life changes. Thanks for being with us tonight. We'll be back again tomorrow at 5.30. Until then, from the team here at BizNews, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews. News.